book of 2 Timothy as we continue our series called Calling. Again, as we did last week, we're going to read two verses. Um, we're going to go pretty deep into these verses. So, uh, here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Last week, as I mentioned, we started this series called Calling, and we're talking about the idea that God has called us uh, as believers to be more than just believers. Uh, he has called us to be followers. Uh, he has a mission, and He is on that mission, and He has called us to follow Him in that mission and to join Him in that mission, uh, which is actually a lot of fun, because even though you may not have made the connection, this actually is the connection behind why you sometimes may think to yourself, I wonder what I was made for. I wonder what I was created for. Well, a big part of what you were created for was to join God on His mission. And do you know how I know that? Because God created you. It's actually by His design that He would uniquely gift you. He would uniquely um, give you strengths. He would uniquely give you talents and even experiences that you've had, uh, including some of the pain that you've experienced, that God wants to leverage that. First and foremost, He wants to bless you through it heal you through the pain, uh, bring you to wholeness. But He doesn't do that just for you and just so that you can enjoy life, although it is enjoyable to live for God. It is enjoyable to live the Christian life, but part, of, in fact, a big part of living the Christian life is thinking about more than just ourselves. Jesus has a mission, and He is calling us to join Him in that mission. Uh, I've said for years that in essence every church has the same mission. We just word it differently. Um, I think that's actually okay. Uh, the church that we uh, came out of here in Topeka, theirs was leading others to life in Christ. That's another way of saying we're going to make disciples. That's actually a good way of saying we're going to make disciples. At Capital City Church, our mission is to help people love Jesus and to live for Him other, other, every day, which is a, just a reworded way of saying we're going to make disciples. We want to love Jesus, and we want to live for Him out of that love. So every church has a mission, and yet it's not always the same expression, right? It's a little bit different expression, even though the core of the mission is very similar. And we actually get the core of the mission. This is one of those verses in the New Testament that gets referenced a lot. Uh, I would dare say many of you have referenced this verse at some point in the last, I don't know, year or two. You've brought it up to someone, um, and many more of you maybe have talked about it. You didn't know where it was. Matthew 28, 19, what we call the Great Commission, which is to go therefore into all the world and make what? Disciples. Say it a little bit louder. Disciples. Make disciples of all nations. Now, what, that di what it didn't say is to make believers of all nations. Because, yes, being a, being a disciple, part of being a disciple is being a believer. But that's not the whole story. There's more to being a disciple than just believing something. Although that's where we start. Right? Like, I, well, it's actually really important. 
Don't try to live the Christian life if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not going to be very good at it. If you figure out how to be decent at it, you're going to be miserable. Because you're going to be doing something that you don't really feel. You don't really feel is right. And yet, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've put our faith in the fact that even though we're sinners, Macy read earlier, right, the passage that says that the wisdom is to, of God is to those who are perishing foolishness, because it starts with this idea that you and I are sinners. The beginning of the gospel is that there's something wrong. In fact, the beginning of the gospel is that there's something wrong with us. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. And I don't just mean Pastor Tim. Although I do mean Pastor Tim. For all of us, that's where it starts. There's a problem, and yet Jesus came and lived and died on the cross to provide a way for me to have forgiveness of that sin that's inside of me. And when I respond to that in faith, I'm not just a believer. I'm a disciple, and I will say this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The New Testament has no category. Let me say it emphatically. The New Testament has no category for believers who are not disciples. It doesn't exist. You can't say, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, but I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. I'm going to keep running my own place. The New Testament doesn't allow a category for that. You can try it. If your faith is real, God's not going to leave you alone. He's going to keep nudging you. Have you figured out that God does this? How many of you have been nudged this week about something? Confession time. I was lifting my hand because I've been nudged about a few things. The elders just had a two-day retreat. I've nudged about some things. They didn't nudge me. God's nudging me. This is what he does. He continues to call us as disciples to follow, to be more than believers, to be learners, to be followers. And again, we talked about this last week, in their context, in their cultural context, the cultural context of New Testament, Palestine, in that area, right? This was not an uncommon idea. That there were teachers and there were, there were people who followed those teachers. And any follower of a teacher was called a disciple. They are quite literally an obeyer. I follow him, but I don't just listen to what he says. I actually try to pattern my life after whatever it is that he's teaching. This is what disciples are. And yet, if every church is called to make disciples, what does it mean to be a disciple? Listen, I said this last week. This is actually one of the most significant questions that we can answer. And it's one of those deceptively hard questions to answer. And some of you think, well, I've been, church, been in church a long time. Right, I'm with you. It's not easy to answer. I'm looking over here at Rodney. He's poured a lot of his life into helping us unpack. What does it mean to be a disciple? Dude, spent hours. I've spent hours. The elders have spent hours. Like, we're trying to figure this out. How do you define it? That's great. We're with you. Tell me what that looks like. Is it just behavior-based? Is there something more to it? Is there a litmus test behavior 
where we can say, well, everybody who does this is a disciple and everybody who doesn't do it isn't a disciple? Or is it vice versa? Everybody who stops doing this is a disciple, but if you haven't stopped doing it, then that's the mark on your forehead, and we just know. That sounds a little frightening, doesn't it? Wait a second. How do you define it? So as we've worked through this, through the help of Rodney and Pastor Aaron and others, we've prayed through and thought through and come up with these four Qualities. These are the four callings that we believe as a church each of us are called to. If we're going to be a disciple, these are the four things that we're called to. From left to right, you see banners up here, right? You like our stained glass? Isn't that awesome? Number one, we're going to be devoted learners. This is in your notes. It's on the screen, on the banners, right? Devoted learners, which means we're going to have a wise worldview. We want to have a worldview of wisdom, listen, that is increasing in wisdom. So wherever you are on the wisdom scale, we think you should be going up and not down. Generally speaking. Although if you zoom in, it's not always just up and to the right. If you zoom in, you may be doing this, oh, right? We should be growing more wise. We want to have a wise worldview that comes from a growing and deepening understanding of Scripture. Why? Because of the passage that Macy read just a few minutes ago. Where does real wisdom come from? It comes from God. And we believe, and we have seen, that as you grow in wisdom... Other disciples will look at you and say, boy, you really are wise. Can you teach me how to be wise? Listen, the only thing you have to offer them is what you've learned from Scripture. Whatever wisdom that you have, you don't get credit for it. We are parroting what God has taught us, and we're finding it to be incredibly true and incredibly valuable. We're devoted learners. We're faithful neighbors. If I'm a faithful neighbor, that means I deal with others in an upright and a just manner. We seek justice, but not justice as defined by anyone else. We seek justice as being defined by Scripture, being defined by God, because theologically the word justice, dikaiosune, is also the word righteousness. And righteousness comes from God. It is an attribute of God, which means He is the source of it, and he defines it. We want to be faithful neighbors. We want to deal with those around us, whether it's, listen up, parents and kids and grandparents and whoever else are in the room. It starts probably with the people we live with, doesn't it? Hey, if we skip over them and we try to be faithful neighbors to everybody else, is that good? Somebody asked me recently, what's your goal? Like, which, I, by the way, is not because I'm some anything. You, we should all be asked that. Like, what's your goal in life? What's your aim? I landed on this years ago. I think I heard somebody say it. I don't think I came up with this. It's too good. I don't think I would have come up with this on my own. <laughs> I want those who know me best to love and respect me most. You know how that starts? By being a faithful neighbor. By just dealing with those around me 
with justice, with being upright. We want to be sincere worshipers. We want to have reverence when we deal with God. It's possible to hold someone in high respect, in high regard, to feel close to them, to feel familiar to them, and yet not be disrespectful. I do it with my dad. There are ways I'm not going to talk to him. Right? We want to we be respectful. We want to have reverence. Because we believe, this is in your notes, as a sincere worshiper, when I am a sincere worshiper, my reverence will lead me to love God deeply and obey Him gladly. That's a pretty good combination, isn't it? That sounds like the one-two punch of discipleship. Because it is. If you can grow this week in loving God more deeply and, in, and obeying Him more gladly, I feel good about your chances of having a great week spiritually. Hey, no matter what happens to you, I feel good about your chances. So we unpacked those three last week in part one of this series. Today we're going to uh, finish up talking about eager multipliers, uh, which is where we do this jumping off point in 2 Timothy 2. This definition is also in your notes. If I am an eager multiplier, that means I take action to see God's work in me multiplied in the lives of others. Here's, listen, this is the, the basic idea very quickly. We're going to circle back to this in just a minute. If I'm an eager multiplier, it comes from a very simple place. It's that I believe that the work that God's done in me, which is a loaded statement, God's done a lot of different works in me. But for all the work that he's done in me, for however long you've been walking with God, for me that's like 30 years I've been working, walking with God. Sometimes good, often not so good. But overall he's been doing a work in me. And it is delightful. Listen, not because of me, but in spite of me. It is delightful. I love to see. In fact, God does his best work when I'm more able to get out of the way. But I love it. I love my kids. I love my wife. So it's no small thing to say this. The most significant thing God has done in me is what the work of the cross has done in me. That's how valuable it is. Listen. Why would I not want to see someone else experience the same thing that I've experienced? I will eagerly want to see that multiplied into Isaac's life and into Marshall's life. I want other people to experience what I've experienced. You say, Tim, what all of you ex have you experienced? Boy, that's like at least one cup of coffee, maybe several. <laughs> we got to unpack this. There's a lot going on here. Hey, the work that God's done in you is similar and yet totally different than the work he's done in me, right? If it is so fantastic, why would I not want to share it with other people? You say, Tim, are you talking about evangelism? Yes, but also a lot more than that. Why would I not want to eagerly multiply the work that God's done in me? I want to see other people have the chance to experience that. Ooh, this is big. I think about this in the, in the context of the next generation, not just my kids, but your kids. And I want to see them go further than I've gone. 
And I want to see them go faster than I've gone. And I want to say, hey, I've done some bonehead things. Could you learn from these and not do them? I want to turn over the keys to somebody and walk out and have them blow the doors off the place. Not just the church, but our homes and our communities and the places where you work and the places where we serve. We want to see God's work eagerly multiplied into the lives of others. Think about this. When Jesus said those words, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, there were around 500 disciples, more or less. Within 300 years, there were more than 30 million worldwide. How did that happen? The principle that we're going to unpack today is that, because here's the thing. At Capital City Church, very purposefully, very intentionally, we're trying to do everything that we can to discover and recover what has the church done for 2,000 years. We don't need to reinvent anything. How do you argue with those numbers? 500 to 30 million. Oh, that we would see something like that again. Oh, that we would stop pretending that the purpose of the church is to just play defense all the time and to be angry and to go to war culturally with people. Give me a flippin' break. You think God isn't bigger than that? Because the most significant work that God's done in me over the last 30 years has nothing to do with being angry with other people. Amen, Tim. So today, this is the principle. We're going to read a principle. Please listen very carefully. This is very important. We're going to read a principle in a specific context of Scripture. And then we're going to lift that principle out and we're going to drop it in some other places because it really does work in that way. Second Timothy, I love it. I, I could spend way too much time talking about this. The gravitas. My son told me last week I'm not allowed to say something's dripping. I guess that means something different to the younger generation. I don't know. But it is. It's dripping with gravitas. This is holy ground. This is significant. Paul, who has given maybe 30 years of his life to the furtherance of the gospel and the expansion of the church, Paul, who, I would remind you, was not primarily a pastor. He was primarily a church planter. He planted and handed it over and left. And he planted and he handed it over and he left. It's an interesting model. I don't plan on trying to replicate it. But it's an interesting model. Paul, who has, and, and if you know anything about Paul, if you remember from your New Testament studies, right? Paul, who was beaten and whipped and shipwrecked and who had given his life. And, oh, this is so big. He knew, if you read 2 Timothy, he knew that he was about to give his life for the sake of the gospel. And he sits down and he pens this very personal letter to his child in the faith, Timothy. Let me ask you this. If you had given 30 years of your life, including much pain and much blood and much suffering and much difficulty, and you knew that you were about to die... 
and you are sitting down to write a letter to the person who is going to carry on your legacy, do you think you might say anything important? Let's ask it a different way. Do you think you would say anything that was unimportant? We don't have time for that. So I'm sorry, Noah, this letter is dripping with gravitas. He's clearly just days away or maybe weeks away from execution. He's aware of it. Listen, I love this. Every verse is inspired. The first verse that we read, he calls Timothy my child. It's the only time in the pastoral epistles that he uses that phrase. He may have been weeping. He certainly was tender. He knew this was important. And he says, verse 1, read with me again, You then, my child, what are the next two words? Be strengthened. Okay, English teachers, help me out here. The rest of you, you're going to have to channel like, I don't know, when do you learn this? 10th grade, 11th grade? I didn't learn it then, so I had to learn it when I studied Greek. All of us Greek students had to learn English before we could learn Greek. The grammar, that's a passive voice. Be strengthened. Listen, it doesn't say strengthen yourself. We are being strengthened by something. Think about what that means. Think about the significance of that. To be strengthened by something. It's a passive voice. We're going to be strengthened by what? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, this echoes last week's idea, and we're going to echo it this week, and we're going to echo it next week. And good Lord willing, every time that we meet, we're going to echo this idea that is not primarily your job to grow yourself spiritually. It is your job to cooperate with the Spirit of God as He does the work. He is better at it than you. He knows what you need better than you know what you need. Amen? I'm going to need a stronger amen on that. That's a pretty important one. He knows what you need better than you know what you need. Amen? So you should cooperate with him when he's trying to do something in your life, even if it is painful. Because he knows. We're going to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're not going to be strengthened primarily by your efforts. You're going to be strengthened by God's grace. God's grace is going to drive our growth and our strength and our progress as disciples. This is in your notes. We are strengthened by grace and only grow in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. But we can take an active role in the process. What are you saying, Tim? I'm saying just because this is primarily passive for us and we're the passengers doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. It means we're not the initiators. We're always cooperating with God in our, in our spiritual growth, but it doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. It doesn't mean you put it on cruise control. So if I'm not growing spiritually, this is so big, I wish we had more time to unpack this. Please, please, please listen. If I'm not growing spiritually, or I feel dry, or I wish that God would do something new, does this sound familiar to anyone in here? It does to me. God, would you do something fresh? In that moment, I don't need to try to pull myself up by my own bootstraps spiritually. It's not going to cut it. I don't want to see what I can do. 
I want to see what God can do in me and through me and maybe in spite of me. So what do we do? I love this, 2 Timothy 1.6. Paul tells Timothy, for this reason I remind you to, say it with me, fan into flame the gift of God. What happens when the fire goes out? You figure out how to fan it back into a flame. You don't do that through your own efforts. You do it through a reminder of how gracious God has been to you. You do it through worship. You do it through celebrating all that God's done for you. You don't double down and try to get up an hour earlier unless you're getting up an hour earlier just to worship God and praise God. You don't run harder, faster. You come back to the cross. You remember, because I guarantee you, in those seasons of your life, and I know it's true in my life, when we're the driest, this is not even in my notes, but I just thought of it. When we're the driest, the cross is the smallest. That's your problem. You and I lose sight of how important the cross is in your life and in my life, of how much we've been forgiven of. So when we're dry, when the fire's gone down, it's not up to you to go chop a bunch of wood or anything else. You fan the flame. Fan the flame. Return to the cross. And then verse 2, which is the core of what we're going to talk about for the final few minutes. And what you have heard from me, listen, which sounds vague, doesn't it? It sounds broad. Okay, well, Tim, like, what do you want me to tell them? You tell them what you've heard from me. You're going to go, which part? Which part? You get up there and talk every week, and you say a lot. Which part? We're going to keep it vague, because it's all of it. The things that you know, the things that you've not just heard, but you've experienced, what you've heard from me, purposefully being broad and vague, The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, check this out, who will be able to teach others also. The principle here, listen, is multiplication. It's not addition. You don't go from 500 to 30 million in 300 years by adding It has to be bigger than that. It has to be bigger than that. It's multiplication. It's exponential. It's across generations. If I share every month, if I share my faith with one person in such a way that they respond and they put their faith in Jesus Christ, if I do that for six months, I've made six disciples. But if every one of the people I share my faith with then turn around and do the same thing every month, At the end of six months, we're not going to have six disciples. We're going to have 21 disciples. How good is that? It's not addition. It's multiplication. Paul knew, even this early in the story of Christianity, that addition, this is in your notes, was not enough. It was not going to be enough. The mission that he leaves with Timothy is not just go teach some people. 
but go teach some people in such a way that they can turn around and teach other people. Because multiplication is going to be the key here. Two very quick observations. These are in your notes. Number one, this is not hierarchical, which means it's not the hierarchy. This is not for the elite. This is not for the clergy. By the way, you maybe didn't know this. You're sitting actually in a Baptist church. And Baptists, by, by our ecclesiology, by the way we think about church, See, it's more than just the name Baptist on the sign that makes you Baptist. Baptists actually think a certain way about church. And one of the ways we think about it is that we don't have clergy. Our pastor's kind of just one of us. Baptists are militant about the idea that if I want to connect with God, I can connect directly with Him. See, you didn't know you were Baptist. That part of you, that part of your theology is baptistic. I don't need anybody between me and God. Everything's available right to me. There is no hierarchy. This is not hierarchical, but it's a mobilization of everyone for the mission. Now, again, very clearly, this was speaking to a specific context. Specific context. But I will say this, this is a quote from William Mounts, which I think is a great quote. This is not a formal institutionalizing of apostolic secession. Because throughout church history, people whose ecclesiology leads them to believe more in a hierarchical nature of the church point to this verse. Well, you can see that it was clearly handed to one guy, and then it was handed to another guy, and another guy. And No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. Not at all. There is no apostolic secession in order to preserve the Christian creed. You know what I love about it? You know how Christianity spread? It wasn't about apostolic secession. It was about decentralization. The church just spread. And it spread everywhere into every nook and cranny. Because it turns out we can all just relate directly to God. How cool is that? This was not only... For Timothy. It's also a pattern that we are called to follow. Second observation, quickly. God's work in you is a stewardship for others, not just a gift for you. It is a gift for you, not minimizing that. And by the way, that's going to be your first and initial experience. When you live the Christian life the way that God has called you to live it, you're going to be overwhelmed at how amazing the experience is. Even though it's difficult, by the way. It's simultaneously both of those things. It's difficult and yet the best thing you've ever given your life to. It's amazing. It's a gift. That's not wrong. It's just not enough. It's not just a gift for you. It's actually a stewardship for others. It's very important. We don't have time to unpack this deeper. I wish we did. You see a pattern in 2 Timothy where Paul, Timothy call, is called by Paul to follow Paul's teachings. Listen, that's the first thing. Then he's called to guard them. And then he's called to pass them down in a way that orients others to do the same. Follow these teachings. Guard them. And then these verses, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 that we've already read. Pass them down in a way that it orients the people you pass it down to to turn around and do the same thing. 
Check it out. 2 Timothy 1. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Again, Paul, this is the end of your life. You've been my mentor for decades. Which sound words are you talking about? Paul says, yes. All of them. You've heard it. You got it. Now go share it with someone else. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Check it out. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Why didn't it say guard the good gift? Because it's not just a gift. It is a gift. But it's more than just a gift. It's a deposit. Which means it still belongs to someone else and it was given to you for a purpose. It's a deposit, which means you're a steward. And stewards are accountable. God, what did I do with what you gave me? This is not about just personal experience. I, I'm not trying to minimize your personal experience. But if the only part of your spiritual walk is what's going on with you personally, you're going to eventually be a frustrated and lonely person. Christianity is about community. It's about what's happening with us. It's about what's happening with our neighbors, by the way. It's about more than just us. Your story is not just a story. Please hear this. Your story is not just a story. It's also an investment by God into your growth because He wants to see your story replicated into other people's stories. The work that He's done in you, He wants to see that multiplied. This is how Christianity has grown. Your growth and progress and joy were not intended only to benefit you. They were intended to multiply the kingdom of God to the glory of God. So what is an eager multiplier? Quite simply, when I am an eager multiplier, I take action to see God's work in me multiplied in the lives of others. You say, Tim, are we going to unpack that? Yes. Over the next two weeks, we're going to unpack some ways that we can see God's work in us multiplied into the lives of others. In your notes, God wants to empower you to expand your impact on the kingdom in two distinct ways. There's a typo there. In two distinct ways. Listen, your faith and your fruitfulness. Very quickly. One way. Who have I shared my faith with recently? I would ask you. Who have you shared verbally with recently about the work that God's done in you? About what it means to be a follower? Second question. What kingdom work am I currently doing that I could train someone else to do? Pastor Tim, why do we have to talk about having a pastoral residency? Because that's what God's called us to do. I need to show other people how to do what I know how to do. What if I get hit by a bus? What if something bad happens? What if we need churches in other places? Come on. How have I trained what I know, poured what I know into someone else? God's mission will require disciples and churches that multiply. That statement is dripping. Here's what I mean by that. You're going to hear me say that a lot. I've said it a lot over the last few months, but I've, I'm going to be more purposeful about saying it. God's mission demands disciples and churches that multiply. Exponential growth 
is the way of the kingdom. And it's not because this is some kind of pyramid scheme or some kind of cult that we're trying to get as many people into as we can. It's because we have seen the magnitude of how much God loves us. And we know that it's not just us that he loves like that. And could I just say this to you? If you're sitting here and you're not a believer or maybe you're not sure about the whole thing, I want you to look me right in the eye. He loves us that much. And it's available to you too. This is not a private club. The doors have been thrown wide open. And this room is full of people who would delightedly tell you how amazing it is to follow Jesus Christ. We would gladly speak up. So as a church, we're going to try to do that eagerly. We're going to try to be eager multipliers. We're going to try to be delighted multipliers. Right? And we're going to celebrate it. We're going to try to live outside of our own selves and our own comfort. And we're going to give ourselves over to something that's much bigger than just us. And it's, much just, it's much bigger than my life and my story. And my, those things are important. But they're part of a much grander narrative. What's God up to in the world around me? The mission of God is going to require <coughs> disciples and churches that multiply. And so I would ask you, what if God wants to write a bigger story through your faithfulness? What if he wants to leverage the progress that you really have made and the pain that you really have experienced? What if he wants to bless others through it? What if he didn't do that in you only for you? What if he gave you those things as a deposit? As a deposit for something bigger? By the way, this is not something you have to be afraid of. Have zero desire making you feel guilty? This is an invitation into a deeper and richer faith experience. <laughs> the type of faith experience that will result in exponential growth, such as from 500 to 30 million in 300 years. That's how powerful this is. That is the experience of New Testament Christianity. What if my personal story is meant to echo beyond my personal experience? Hey, for just a second, could you dream with me? What if Capital City Church was full of people who were approaching their faith just that way? What kind of church might we be? What kind of stories might we get to tell? What kind of services might we have? How loudly might we sing when Eric's up here trying to get us to sing about the God of the universe? Right? How incredible might that be? So we're going to pray Psalm 145. I'm going to read it. I'm going to get things started. I'm going to give you just a minute to pray. Psalm 145, in verses 10, we're going to read verses 10 through 13. It says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. 
They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. There is no shaking. There is no tottering. There is no fear about how the next election might go. We just gladly and delightfully serve the King. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Could I just tell you how glad I am to know that great King Jehovah's dominion is going to extend after I'm gone when my boys are still here and still living? I thought I'd get one amen on that. What's going to happen to my kids after I'm gone? I don't know, but King Jehovah's still going to have dominion. I can tell you that. You know why? Because this is my father's world. And it's his mission. And he's calling us to join him in it. Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the work that you've done in us for the stories that we can already tell, for the things that we can already celebrate about how good you've been to us. It is amazing to see the anointing that you've put on my life and on the lives of so many of us here. In spite of how boneheaded we are, how ridiculous some of our decisions are, how wrongly we get it sometimes, you still choose to bless us in spite of our own sin. You still choose to save us. You still choose to love us. And graciously, you still choose to call us to be on mission with you. God, we worship you. We magnify your name because of the great work that you've done in us. Give us a zeal that bubbles over, that boils over with delight in how good you've been to us. Help us to gladly publicly proclaim your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.